Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Psalm 100, a psalm for thanksgiving. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and take a seat, please. It's a beautiful psalm, and it's rightly titled in the margins, uh, a psalm of praise, or if you have a New American Standard Bible, it's a psalm of thanksgiving. Uh, it's actually the only psalm bearing that particular title, which is noteworthy. Uh, it's not that other songs aren't means to expressing praise or thanksgiving. It's just that this one stands apart from the rest when it comes to that. One commentator wrote, among the psalms of triumph and thanksgiving, this, stand, this one stands preeminent as rising to the highest point of joy and grandeur. And Spurgeon says, it is all ablaze with grateful adoration and has for this reason been a great favorite with the people of God ever since it was written. Nothing can be more sublime this side of heaven than singing of this noble psalm by a vast congregation. The Psalter version of the psalm was commonly referred to the old 100th. Uh, it's the inspiration for the hymn, All People That on Earth Do Dwell. And as Spurgeon alluded, uh, this psalm has been a, a favorite uh, for a long time, and I especially look forward to my soul, soul among lions getting to it eventually. <laughs> They're not too far off. They're making ground. Uh, but tonight we'll have to enjoy it simply by studying it. Uh, psalm 100 is the final psalm in a grouping of psalms. Uh, that began in Psalm 93. These psalms all focus on God as the king reigning over the entire earth. Uh, for example, Psalm 93.1 says, The Lord reigns, he is clothed with majesty. 94.2 says, Rise up, O judge of the earth, render rec- recompense to the proud. 95 verses 3 and 4 says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. 96.1, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, and so on through 97, 98, 99, all the way to our passage. And Psalm 100 starts or begins with, shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Um, you know, every morning we conclude our service with a doxology, and um, a guy named uh, Perone says, if we are right in regarding Psalms 93 through 99, as forming one continuous series, one great prophetic oratorio, um, oratorio, whose title is Jehovah is King, and through which there runs the same great idea, this psalm may re- be regarded as the doxology which closes the strain. We find lingering in its notes of the same great harmony. It breathes the same gladness. It is filled with the same hope that all the nations shall bow down before Jehovah and confess that he is God. Uh, So this psalm is gasoline for waning fire. If your heart is growing cold, 
your worship becoming dead religion, douse yourself with Psalm 100. Let it, let's do that now, but first let's pray. King of the earth, our Lord and Redeemer, set us free from being formalists and cold in our worship of you. Give us a glad heart that explodes with thanksgiving and praise. You are good, and we bless your name forever. Amen. The structure of Psalm 100 is really simple. There's a pattern that repeats twice in these five verses. Uh, There's a set of imperatives or or commands uh, that are given, followed by the grounds or reason for those commands. For example, in verses 1 and 2, we are told to shout, serve, come. And then in verses 3, we are told why we are his people. And that pattern repeats. It happens again in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, we are told to enter, give, and bless. And then we're told why in verse 5. We are, uh, the Lord is good. All right, so let's look at the first set, starting in verse 1. Shout joyfully to the Lord. Often when a victorious king would return from battle, his subjects would greet him with a loud shouts of acclamation. You know, Caesar, 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 stuff like that. Um, and it's the shout of people made victorious by a glorious warrior king that this has in mind. And that should be us. Uh, we should be praising Christ, the eternal king of kings, the way pagans praise their temporary, you know, lesser kings. You know, praise Jesus, right? Can't do stuff like that in uh, Presbyterian churches. And that is to our shame. It really is. Um, we should be able to scream hallelujah. It, it irritates you at first, but when you realize that uh, for many people, those are real shouts of acclamation. They are thankful. And you are not. You're the one in the wrong. You mouse. Speak up. It's not enough to shout, though. That is not the command. The command is to shout joyfully. God is not after mere action. The attitude of your heart is the is of utmost importance. Uh, in Psalm 51, David says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So God commands you to worship him from your heart. You must shout joyfully. Spurgeon rightly says, Our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. A cheerful spirit is in keeping with his nature, his acts, and the gratitude which we should cherish for his mercies. Is society depraved? Yes. The wickedness of our day is exceptional. Are our churches struggling? Yes. Just the other day, a young man called me from Atlanta. Atlanta, that's a big town, looking for a good church. And I, I didn't know one off the top of my head. I'm sure there, there, there are some in Atlanta. Um, but he couldn't find one. He's been looking for a long time. And it's hard to find churches today that have both good uh, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? Theology and practice, even within our own denomination. Uh, is, are, are our lives difficult? Yeah. Are our sins many? Yes. Do people fail us? Yes. Are there a thousand reasons to be morose and depressed? Yes. That is unless Christ 
is your king. Listen to Colossians 2. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. If your shout lacks joy, it's because you think much of yourself and little of God. Christ is a victor. Now he also says, um, all the earth. And this psalm is prophetic. It looks forward to a day when the gospel of the kingdom would go out and make converts of every tribe and tongue, as it has been doing now for 2,000 years. Our God is no local deity. Anyone that reads ancient Near Eastern you know, religions, all that silly nonsense, and then reads the Bible, they're, they're totally different. People always say that, um, that those guys borrowed from Babylonian. The only people that say that are the people that spend all their time on Reddit and actually don't read those books. If they read that, they would see it's very, very different. Um, our God is the God of the earth. He is the king of the earth. He will destroy the idols of the nation, toss down every false religion. He will call his elect, and those that once were lost uh, will declare the praises of their king. It always encourages me to think of the Catholic nature of the church. Unlike nations, the church doesn't have any geographic boundaries. Uh, across the entire planet today, in the last 24 hours, there have been people praising Jesus in Czechoslovakian, wherever they speak, Chinese. And this is Christians all over this planet praising God today. They're singing joyfully to our God. It's beautiful. Verse 2 says, serve the Lord with gladness. Our worship, that is, our service to God ought not be begrudging. And I've been to church services that are truly lifeless. They're like funerals. Uh, when Emily and I well, moved to downtown Cincinnati to plant a church, it was recommended to me to visit all the local churches. I don't know if that's good advice or bad. It certainly depressed me. Um, so we went to, especially churches in a downtown area. I don't know, they're usually a little wacky. But... Um, we went, and it was depressing. And listen, the worship of the true God is a serious thing. There should be sobriety. You know, happy, clappy Christianity, that cotton candy nonsense. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, the thing is, even though it's serious, it shouldn't be an emotionless thing. You know, effeminate preachers and worship leaders have ruined the word passion. They've ruined it. I don't want to be associated with that word because of those guys. They make it icky. And it's a shame because our worship should be passionate. It should be. Worship can be an emotional roller coaster, as it should be. Have you ever been made sick with conviction by a prayer of confession in this church? Someone's up there, and they're listing out sins that they're repenting for the congregation. You feel like maybe someone's been telling on you, but it's just God loves you, and God's here to deal with you. And you just start to feel sick. And... Uh, then you start to look in or feel hopeless. And then they tell you to stand up. And then that scripture assurance is read. A word of hope for the repentant, right? God forgives. 
And then your heart bubbles over with gladness. You know, we do that every week in this church. Every week we do that so you guys will be glad. And you should experience emotion here. A lot of people get mad because we make them feel. That's what people get mad about. They don't want a feel. They want to stay numb. And the word of God is a sword and it pierces you. And this gets us to why are the grounds for these imperative. Know that the Lord himself is God. The word Lord refers to God's covenantal name, Yahweh, or sometimes translated as Jehovah. Um, why do we worship with joy and gladness? Because our eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit. And, by, and we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. We've been brought into relationship with God. Yahweh is our God. We are in covenant with him. The king of creation is our king. We once were his enemies, uh, but now we are his subjects. Right? He, was the, he was the enemy force that the king was going to crush. You were on that side. But God's brought you in. And even, even better than being his subjects, we're actually heirs to his kingdom. Right? We're sons of the king. It says, it is he uh, who made us, not we ourselves. This isn't speaking merely of God creating man, though he certainly did that. It's referring to the regenerating work he does in his elect. It's giving new life, being born again. Uh, Calvin says, believers are the persons whom the prophet here declares to be God's workmanship. Not that they were made men in their mother's womb, but in the sense in which Paul in Ephesians 2 calls them the poema, the workmanship of God, because they are created unto good works, which God hath before ordained that they should walk in them. So Titus 2 gets at this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works." It's interesting, in a few manuscripts, uh, the, the second half of, of the first line in verse 4 is translated, it is he who has made us, and we are his. Uh, so we belong to Christ. We are his possession. First Peter 2.10 says, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. In Isaiah 43, I love this one. I have redeemed you. You are mine. You are mine. So even if the variant translation of that First line in verse 4, you know, it's not right. Uh, It doesn't matter. The same idea pops up in the second half of 4. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Christ is our good shepherd. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the grounds of our joyful singing, of our glad service. You've been saved. You've been born again. Christ is your Lord and Savior. He knows your name. He hears your prayers. How can that be true and you be joyless in the worship of your God? Well, I can't. But we're quick to forget, right? And that's why we must be constantly reminded of our desperate need for the grace of God. That's why we play the bongos at Trinity. Metaphorically speaking, right? There's no, I forget what you call that thing. Uh, You know, bongos have two drums, and uh, we pound both the sin of man and, and the grace of God, right? Sometimes we pound over here a little longer. Sometimes we pound over here or whatever. We pound them both. That's the drum we beat here. And we do it so you'll praise God with joy and thanksgiving. 
And we're not going to stop. It's never going to stop. That's the sort of percussion you're going to hear every single Sunday. Promise you. Then he says, uh, verse 4, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. This begins the second set of verses. This is talking about the gates uh, which lead to God's temple or to the place of public worship. The courts were literally the open spaces which surrounded the tabernacle and temple. That's where a lot of the praise happened out there by the people. Uh, and this, this verse is called a passionate participation in the public worship of God. That's what it's calling people to. It's talking about the temple, where you would go and gather. So God's, God's spirit's not, ever, it's never been limited anywhere. Um, but people have this mistaken idea that since, you know, the curtain was torn in the, temp, you know, in the temple, that we don't gather anymore to worship him as a people. That's not what scripture teaches at all. Um, and this verse definitely has a uh, New Testament, the, the time after Jesus' ministry in mind, uh, because it's talking to whole earth, the whole earth. Um, David Clarkson, he was the successor to John Owen, uh, preached a great sermon entitled, Public Worship to be Preferred Before Private. They go on, Google it. Um, every bit of America in you will hate it. Uh, in it, he gives 12 reasons why public worship is better than private worship. And um, I'll read a few to you. The Lord is more glorified by public worship than private. God is glorified by us when we acknowledge that he is glorious and, we, and he is most glorified when this acknowledgement is most public. Uh, the second reason. There is more of the Lord's presence in public worship than in private. He, he is present with his people in the use of public worship in a special way, more effectually, constantly, intimately. You will get more out of sermons, and you will have your, you know, time with Oswald Chambers. This is such a terrible devotional, to be honest. Anyway, uh, you'll get way more time out of it, or get, get way more, uh, God will bless you through it, more strengthening. Uh, sixth, public worship is better security against apostasy than private. No one believes this anymore. Uh, he who lacks or rejects public worship, whatever private means he enjoys, is in danger of apostasy. You know, people don't, don't keep walking in orthodoxy. Uh, for long, because they're already going against it by neglecting the gathering of yourself together. Public worship is the nearest resemblance of heaven. In the Bible's depictions of heaven, there is nothing done in private, nothing in secret. All the worship of that glorious company is public. In other words, um, that we, we're not going to be playing harps in heaven. That's not all that's going to happen. We're going to be worshiping a lot, and we're going to be together forever as a community. And this runs against the grain of American individualism. Uh, and that's because you don't know yourself and you think you're way more self-sufficient than you are. Um, we watched some show. It was like some riff on Survivor. Anyway, one of the tough guys was off in a couple days. And the fat guy was still going, right? He gave hope for all fat men out there. But the guy's like all ripped. He thinks he's going to do it. And he knows all this stuff. He's like off the second day. That's us. We think, we think we know what we're doing. We think we've got it um, down. But then when we're put under uh, the fires of reality, uh, we wilt really quick. And there's a thousand reasons for not coming to church. You know, it's funny. It's weird. 
was thinking about this. It's really hard for pastors to challenge people to show up to services um, because, well, we know you don't like it, <laughs> I think. At least I think you don't like it. I don't know. Um, but if I challenge you to come to service and you don't come to service, it's like I don't really lose anything because uh, you weren't coming that often anyway. So I'm gonna, Now, most of you are here Sunday night, so this is a good crowd. There's always preaching to the choir, um, but maybe not. You have a ton of reasons for missing church. Like you're, I hear this one a lot. Phase of life. Like a pagan phase of life? <laughs> what do you mean phase of life? I don't know what that means. Is it, what phase of life is a church not important to a Christian? Not a good one. Now look, I know a lot of you have little kids, and little kids are little buckets of disease. I get it. I have six of them. Um, but... I have six of them. I don't miss church. And I didn't miss church long before I was paid to be here. I don't care if you pay me or not. I'm still going to come. I fear God. You know, I fear my heart. I know I'm a few Sundays away from going apostate. I cling to the church. Illness, you know. Um, we have all these, like, soaps and stuff that they didn't have back in the day. And yet we're always missing church. Well, like, here's, a, here's the thing. Imagine, take the number of Sundays that you miss in a given year and break it down. There's 52 Sundays in most years. Break it down to percentage and ask yourself, if you miss work that many times, would they fire you? You know, would they fire you? And if the answer is yes, repent, unless you have some crazy sickness. I've heard evangelism. I've heard that one a lot. You know, we're going to go to a football game. I'm going to do evangelism. going to show him how much he should love the church. By not going to church. Um, kids programs. Soccer's the devil, man. Seriously, soccer, just, it's always on Sunday. I mean, first it's a Nancy boy sport, so you got that. But, um, I'm sure soccer players can hold their own with football players. Um, but, <laughs> so there's some big ones out there, yeah. But um, the problem is, we, what are you training your kids for? They're not going to be on the MLS. You know, Galilee's never going to, I doubt she's going to be a, I'm sorry, baby. I doubt you're going to be a ballerina, um, do ballet, maybe. We'll see. She shakes her head, no. She's like, it's true. <laughs> uh, so her recital is on a Sunday. So we're not going to go to a recital because it's just not our family's priority. There's so many excuses. Here's the thing. Look, you start skipping, and it'll, it'll become a habit for you. And this is why I learned that with 8 a.m. classes in college, man, you show up to everyone, or it better be a class you can pass without ever going because once you start skipping, you don't go. Um, but it's much worse. It'll become a habit for your child, and spotty attendance among dad and mom usually leads to no attendance among son and daughter when they age. You say you love your kids? Show up to church. Make it a priority for them. Are you saying church saves me? Kind of. Kind of am. The means of grace. Yeah, God works through his word and through prayer and through the fellowship of the believers. Nah, yeah, we're saved by grace. I believe that, by what Jesus did on the cross. But you get what I'm saying. Come to church. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. 
His loving kindness is everlasting. And His faithfulness to all generations. Where else can you go to be with a room full of people that know how awesome God is? It can be rough out there. It can be rough at work when you're surrounded uh, by, we're just, you know, guys telling jokes that you can't laugh at. And uh, it's just people that live for wickedness. I got in trouble for calling um, uh, Alfred Kinsey a pervert because uh, he's a pervert. It's the main reason I called him that. And, and I, this was in Bloomington. Someone brought him up, and they asked me if I knew who Kenzie was. So I was like, I don't. I know who Kenzie is. He's a pervert. Wouldn't recommend him to anyone. Um, he's the man behind the sexual revolution, most likely, where you can probably trace the explosion of it. Um, so I get called in the office. Uh, this was at Author Solutions in Bloomington. And uh, Kenzie is famous in Bloomington. That's where the, uh, his, his institute is. He's since dead. Um, and uh, so I get called in the office. I'm like, look, Michael, you can't call people perverts. I like, didn't call in the office pervert. I called Kenzie a pervert. Well, why did you do that? Well, he's a pervert. Well, listen, I sit here all day long and listen to people talk about what happened this weekend. Right, with the people they're meeting at the bars. All I do is sit and listen to these people talk about wickedness. And I can't say he's a pervert, you know? And so I come to church and I'm surrounded by people, Lord willing, that fear God, love righteousness, want to grow, are repenting. It's a very, very encouraging place to be. Uh, we can come together to reflect on God's wonderful attributes. And anytime I teach on worship, all I can think of is the one pro boxing fight I got to go to. And I used to do a lot of work in Vegas. And um, Floyd Mayweather, I got to go watch him fight Ricky Haddon. And Ricky Haddon was 40-0, and 0, and he was going to beat Floyd Mayweather. No one's ever going to beat him. Um, and uh, so then this fight's crazy. There's all these British people that came over. Because Ricky Haddon's got a connection to Man- Manchester United somehow. And I guess those are really crazy soccer fans. Uh, as you can tell, I'm, I don't know much about soccer. Um, but uh, they, they were chanting. They were chanting his, his name and singing, singing Ricky Haddon's praises. And it was intense. And the guy asked me if I had ever been to England. And I said, I think I am in England. Right? And I had never, I'd never seen sports fans like that my whole life, like in person. I've never seen, I've been to many Bengals games. I've been to baseball games. Never seen anything like that. And, uh, and these guys, are they don't know each other, like holding each other. And there's this sense of commonality around Ricky Haddon and Manchester United. Um, man, if, <laughs> Jesus is so much better. God is so much better. We have so much more in common than they do. You know? I love what I see what God doing, is doing in this church. I am, I am encouraged most Sundays. Yeah, very much so. I love to be in a room full of people that love my God, right? Because he's loving, merciful, true. He's a holy God. He is good. And, and we're going to be the recipients of that goodness. It says here, uh, and his faithfulness to all generations forever and ever and ever. Um, one commentator said he is a being of unchangeable benevolence, mercy, and truth. Such a God is worthy to be had in universal reverence. Such a God is worthy of universal praise. And a day is coming when we all be together and praise him. And every knee, every knee is going to bend 
and, and, and admit who Jesus is, the king of king over the whole earth. So Christian, you have no excuse for cold worship. Repent. Stop it. Ask God. Ask God to strengthen you in your repentance. Meditate on how good he is. How good you have it. You know where you were heading, and you know you deserved it. I try to remind you of that all the time, that you deserved hell, and now you've been forgiven. That's what we do. Enjoy God. Taste the heavenly goodness now as you fellowship with his people. Uh, Tate and Brady have a version of Psalm 100. I want to read it to you before, before I pray. Um, With one consent, let all the earth to God their cheerful voices raise. Glad homage pay with awful mirth and sing before him songs of praise. Convinced that he is God alone, from whom both we and all proceed, we whom he chooses for his own, the flock that he vouchsafes uh, saves, uh, to feed. Oh, enter then his temple gate, thence to his courts devoutly press, and still your grateful hymns repeat, and still his name with praises bless. For he's the Lord, supremely good. His mercy is forever sure. His truth, which always firmly stood, to endless age shall endure. He's a good God. Right. Meditate on this psalm of thanksgiving, so your heart will always be tuned to him.